0: Okay, here we go. Craig Alexander, otherwise known as Crowie, is an Australian triathlete, physiotherapist, media contributor, and a professional speaker. You may know him best as the 2008, 2009, and 2011 Ironman Triathlon World Champion and course record holder for the Ironman World Championship. Crowy is still popping up in races all over the world, and he's only slightly younger than me, (laughs) but still winning races. So I invited him on this episode to talk about his history of fitness and also how he trains today to stay at the top of his game. My name is Brock Armstrong, and this is Second Wind Fitness. But before we get started... As you've probably noticed, this podcast is no longer in production, but there are so many people who are still listening to each episode and reaching out to me for advice and help and support that I've decided to keep the dream and this podcast alive, which means I'm paying a few maintenance fees out of my pocket. And I don't mean to make this sound like a woe is me kind of affair because it is indeed a pleasure to have created something that is being appreciated. But if you felt so inclined, you could go to brockarmstrong.com slash coffee to, yes, as it sounds, buy me a virtual coffee. And since coffee is easily my biggest vice, I'm what you would call a coffee snob. If you buy me a coffee, I can pay my hosting fees with all the coffee money that I save. So win-win situation here. So go to brockarmstrong.com slash coffee and help keep this podcast and my fancy coffee habit alive. That's brockarmstrong.com slash coffee. You've probably told this story a million times, but th- all the people that I coach, I have two nicknames i 'm either Brock Star or Brock Strap which <laughs> I'm not very uh fond of the second <laughs> one, but <laughs> the first one I quite like but people i mean my entire the entire time that I've known of you and and followed your career and stuff, you've been crowy, you haven't been Craig Alexander. it's always been like, yeah, did you see Crowey? Oh yeah, Crowy was kicking ass and so so why do people call oh, you crowy?
1: It started. 1996, 97. So I just started in triathlon, really. I'd been in the sport probably 18 months. And I'd had a good race at a World Cup race. I finished fourth at a World Cup race, and I got invited to train with the national squad. So we are training um, down in our mountains here in Australia, uh, down in the snowy mountains in a little town called Threadbow. We had a, a training camp there, and we were training very hard. All the, Some of the, not some, most of the legends of Australian triathlon were, were there on that camp. And we were training pretty hard, but we had an afternoon off this one day, and we were watching. We were all gathered around watching the television. And we have a, a sport down here called Surfline Man Racing. All the lifesavers okay. they 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 swim, they run, they paddle a ski, and they paddle a board. Mm. It's pretty pretty well known sport. Um, used to be on television. And yeah, we're just all sitting around at this training camp watching this event one afternoon. And this guy runs across the screen. His name was Jonathan Crow. Apparently, I had a striking resemblance to him. <laughs> As is often the way with these nicknames, the simplest thing can lead to it. So there was a lot of guys and girls in the room with me that they, I want to say it was Greg Welsh or, or Chris Hill. They they just said, Man, you you look like that guy. So from now on you're going to be known as Crowy. Um, <laughs> so that was in. And I didn't protest. I didn't I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in Australia, if you have a nickname that you don't like and you're always protesting or complaining about it, the more it sticks. So Absolutely. Yeah, I guess it could have been worse nicknames.
0: Fair enough. And like you said, it could be a lot worse. So so why not? And you ended up calling your or naming your book after that nickname as well. So it really has taken on a life of its own from (laughs) that. Yeah. Those strange beginnings. But I guess while we're talking about sort of your creation story, as all superheroes have their creation story, you know, you didn't actually take up the sport that that most people know you for but triathlon until you were in your
1: 20s, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah, 20 so, 2021, 20, yeah. What was your fitness
0: life like before that? That you were you an active kid? Yeah. You must have been you must have been,
1: surely. I think Australia is like Canada. Uh we have a out bit of an outdoor lifestyle. Yeah. People are either into sport or they're into hiking or or just being outdoors generally. That's sort of the culture and you know, I did I had an active childhood growing up played a lot of sports my main sport was soccer or football I played hmm. I played soccer from um, six years of age until I was 20 uh, oh, wow. yeah it was my it was my main sporting love um, 15 years and I played to quite a high level and I think with that you get a, a quite a good base of fitness because you know the, the sport involves a lot of uh, running um, yeah. so I had I think I had good aerobic condition I think that was a good a good platform. From which to, I guess, to launch in the triathlon. But of course, the I, was, I wasn't playing soccer with the, with the mindset of oh, this will help me for triathlon. I was playing soccer right. because I love to play soccer and I wanted to be a professional soccer player. And it didn't it didn't pan out for one reason or another. And I mean, I was just at college. I was college studying to be a, a physiotherapist, mm. and I'd had a, I had a couple of part time jobs while I was at college, and one of them was as a, as a labourer. I had a lot of I had this job with a lot of lifting, and I hurt I hurt myself. I got a hernia and had about six months off all sports. And yeah, just part of the rehabilitation was I needed to rest. But then, yeah, my mum just said to me one day, I, I probably had a late night out at the college bar or something. Shocking. So, yeah. <laughs> the things you do at college. And she just said, you used to be so active. You used to be so active. Now you don't really do any sport. And it was funny because I, I was having these thoughts about wanting to, you know, when you, when you're active and then you don't do it, you get, you get a little bit restless. I think I was getting a little bit restless and I was, I was mm-hmm. wanting to exercise or just get back in shape. And yeah, my mum said that to me one day and the very next day I went out and just started jogging, just started running um, to get back in shape, to get some sort of fitness back. And I started jogging every third day and that became every second day and that became every day. And my best mate at college was a very accomplished cyclist, an A-grade cyclist, he used to race and he used to do triathlons for cross training I was always asking questions and he said, man, I can get you started. You know, it's why don't you get into some swimming so you can get the swimming and running down and then when it's time to pick up the third discipline, I'll help you with that. And so really, that's how it started, just innocent beginnings and just wanting to get back in shape.
0: Yeah, you know, that's such a, a familiar story, especially the part about running. It seems to be kind of one of those defaults when the doctor or in your case, your mom tells you like you, you need to get back in shape or something that it just sort of the default is go out and do some running and I Mm. guess in your case it it worked really well because you had that soccer background you had that that base but even the way you describe it it was you did sort of ease your way back into it Mm. now was that because you had that physiotherapy training or was it just an intuition
1: I think it was a bit of both certainly starting to be a physiotherapist and learning the principles of endurance training and biomechanics and all the things that are important Uh, For exercising or for running helped me every day of my career and still does to this day. Mm. But I think there was a bit of an intuition there as well. I'd had a few injuries later in my soccer career, so I wanted to ease my way back in and and also, you know, if you think back to the mid to late '90s, triathlon was different than to what it is now. There wasn't the abundance of coaches, so Mm. I I didn't have. I was pretty much self-coached my whole career, so it's not like I had someone I could lean on for advice or. But I think it was an intuition that, you know, the the way to get back into it is as much as I want to jump into it at the deep end I've you know, I'd had a few lower leg issues towards the end of my soccer career, injuries, impact injuries, and just wanted to, uh, I guess, dip my toe in rather than dive in at the deep end. So, uh, but it it came around really quickly. I think the body's very smart. And when you subject it to something, you get adaptations and then you just progress. So, um, you know, at that time at uni, we were learning about the principles of endurance training and, and progressing the training and getting those adaptations. And yeah, so just sort of, I guess it was a timing thing and an, an intuition thing. So
0: it sounds like you were, you were in university, you were working as a laborer, and you were also training for a triathlon. That's quite a, a full schedule. How did you manage to balance all of those things and not just end up injured and burnt out and failing classes and actually became a professional triathlete at the end of that?
1: Well, I probably didn't go to as many classes as I should have, but um <laughs> you know, I, I just again having that physio knowledge or building that knowledge, one of the things that we learned in basic physiology, which is first or second year, was that endurance training, it's it's not it's you know, this is not the kind of sport that you're gonna take up and be be a world champion by the end of summer. Yeah. This is something that's gonna be a it's it's a long project. So I think Setting that expectation early, regardless of how much natural talent you have, becoming a world class endurance athlete takes hours. Yeah, and you hear people talk about—is it ten thousand hours? It's, it's a lot of hours. And yeah. so I think I have, i had that expectation early, and, and I didn't know that I was going to become a multiple world champion, but I thought right from the beginning, from the very first day, something about the training and the challenge of it just appealed to me. I loved it. I, I became passionate about. Almost the journey before I was even on the journey. Like this is going to be a long project, but I'm so up for it because every day was different. Every day was challenging for different reasons, and so I had a real enjoyment. I loved the training. I loved being out outside. When I progressed from the running to the to the swimming and running, and started doing a lot of what we they're now called aquathons. We used to call them biathlons. Yeah, I think I did six or nine months worth worth of those events before I did a triathlon, and a lot of um. I guess event organisers were putting on these events, sw- particularly swim run races, so they were everywhere every weekend. I jumped into those, and I just I just loved it. I loved the variety of the different the swimming and the running, and then the swimming cycling and running, the different training, and yeah, just really was had an enjoyment. It sort of the sport appealed to me on a different level, a few different levels, just the mental challenge of it as well as the physical challenge. And even though I, I as you say, I was juggling a few things, it, it wasn't. I just enjoyed getting up early and I'd go and I'd often I had a an Olympic pool. It was about a mile and a half from where I lived. So I would, I would jog there, dive in and swim for 20 minutes, half an hour and then run home and then go go off to college. Yeah. So I just got in a good routine and and was lucky I progressed quite rapidly to the point where within six or nine months, I started winning a little bit of prize money at some of these events. So mm. um, the swim run races always had prize money. And I was progressing and, and and winning a little bit of money, so quite quickly I gave away the the job, and I was just then it just became about the training and and education. So um, yeah, I, I think you know things happen in an authentic way in life if you if you have a passion for something and you love it and you're trying to learn and um, immerse yourself in it. I was just progressing very rapidly, and yeah, things just sort of found a natural a natural progression and a natural pathway.
0: You know, something really interesting about everything that you just said there a lot of people who are not professional athletes and and look at people like you and look at their careers think like oh man he must have so much motivation like how you must have so much willpower and just every day jumping out of bed and and making yourself go and and train but it sounds to me like it was more a passion like there is there was so much drive there that you didn't have to worry about being motivated you didn't have to worry about using willpower because you were it sounded like you were in love with the with the process
1: you know what i i loved the early morning training sessions i loved how i felt after afterwards i loved the whole journey of i could see myself getting fitter and i was sort of you know in my running and my swimming particularly at that point i was making large improvements quite quickly which happens at the start Mm -hmm. of any journey i think right you sort of progress rapidly you're on the steep part of that improvement curve and then at some point you plateau off a little bit and it takes a lot more work to realize much smaller improvements but yeah it was just the, the thought process was just around enjoyment and um it wasn't even around I need to make a career out of this or I need to get to this level by this time it was I was just enjoying every day the training and you know it's the old saying when you enjoy doing something it's not it's not like working it's not like it's not like anything it's just enjoyment and that's what it was. Um, it's funny you say that because later on obviously it became my career and when that happens there's other um, stakeholders involved and other pressures involved and it does right. become more like a career and not that the love ever goes out of it but it's it's just different because there's more pressure but those early days in the sport I have nothing but fond memories of just training every day never never balking when the alarm went off in the morning I just especially you know during the summers down here when it was hot and the sun was up at 5 30 in the morning I just you know, I was often awake before the alarm went off and I just really enjoyed my routine. I enjoyed swimming and running before going to college. I felt, I felt, you know, wide awake and really up for the day by the time I'd done that and, and headed off to college. And so, yeah, it was, it was a, a fun time in my life. And I think back, yeah, the motivation was never a problem back then. Um, and even later in the career, the motivation was never a problem because I just always enjoyed. The, the challenge changed a little bit as your career changes, but I always enjoyed the, the puzzle of trying to improve and be better and, and the things you're focusing on those little later in your career, it's more that, I guess the marginal gains, whatever the focus was at the time, it was always a challenge mentally and physically. And, and I, I, I love that about the sport. So, um, but yeah, in the early days, it was just, it was just a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. I, I like the word challenge. You, you keep using that word challenge. And I think a lot of people um, look at their, their exercise and their workouts and stuff as more of a chore and i think the way that you've you've sort of positioned it as being this challenge this process that you're working on and you were really enjoying the the feeling of getting better at it and and seeing that progress that you were making is really it's something that i think we overlook a lot in our in our fitness regime we end mm. up latching on to something that we read in runners world or in muscle magazine or something like that and we just do it because we're supposed to where it sounds like you were doing things because you were just you kind of almost had to. It almost sounds like like it was such a drive inside you.
1: Yeah, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the process, and you know, it's funny though. I mean, I work with athletes all the time now, and everybody's different. There's, there's no right mm-hmm. or wrong. There's no right or wrong way to train or to be motivated. Motivation's a personal thing. If it's real to you, then it'll be it'll be powerful and long lasting. And I think understanding the kind of person you are helps if you're trying to structure your training, and if you're someone who doesn't like the I guess the science of sport maybe think less about that if if you like the social element then then train more in a group I think you've got to set up structures and processes around you that make it easy to get out the door and to start because I think starting's the the hardest part and look I'm not going to sit here and say it was all sunshine and and rainbows it was hard training's hard and it often is -hmm. is uncomfortable it can be uncomfortable when you're running at threshold or swimming at threshold it can be uncomfortable when you get little niggles. Particularly the running part of it, I think, for me, swimming and biking because the nature of those two disciplines—they're non-weight bearing. They didn't carry as much discomfort as running. Uh, running is a weight-bearing sport. Biomechanics are important. It's a, it's a repetitive. All three disciplines are very repetitive um, in the action that you do. So, you know, there's a a risk of injury there unless you can really work on core strength and and good efficient technique. So, um, but I just think you got. All those boxes that you need to check, and the science and the theory behind it all. The most important thing is to be self-aware and understand. Well, what, what's going to get me out the door? Um, mm. What are my What are my challenges? What are my What are my goals? And again, goals are a personal thing. I mean, someone might be trying to win a world title, but somebody else might just be trying to get back into shape after I don't know being in college, transitioning into the corporate world for twenty years, but but just really wanting to get back and do a few park runs or do a few open water swimming races or, or whatever. I think any goal is a worthwhile goal if it if it carries some weight for you. Um, but you need to structure your day and your week around making it as easy as possible to get out the door and, and you know, check off that training each day.
0: Uh, you probably answered this question already in, in that, but maybe we can drill down a little bit more. In your coaching, like as, a, as a coach, I think I was planning to talk to you as an athlete, but I kind of forgot that you're actually you're a quite a well-known coach at this point. You've coached a lot of different people. When a, an athlete that you're working with comes to you and, and says, or if you see in their training log that they're missing a lot of their workouts and they're, they're struggling get to get things done, how do you address that? What do you, what do, you do with those people?
1: You talk, you communicate. I mean, I don't coach as much one-on-one as some of the other coaches in our business do, but what what I see with the great coaches is they build a rapport with the athlete and a trust. Mm. The theory of endurance training is quite easy to grasp. You can Google the principles of endurance training, successful endurance training, and, and you can read about all the important elements of consistency, working on endurance, speed, strength, technique, recovery. But I think the key the key point is it's it's not about you know getting a person or molding an athlete to the theory it's about molding the training to the person and what's this person's day look like are they are they on their feet are they a laborer or are they in an office sitting down you know in this position with with their hips closed off how does that impact the training later that evening i mean getting to understand the person's situation what's their what's their family life like are they running around all weekend, kids sport before they get to their own training. I mean, it's about understanding how to mould the training and the principles to fit the person, not the other way around. And you know, it's not an exact science. And there's more than one. There's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. I think there's there's not so much a right and wrong as what's what's right for this person in this situation. So yeah, it's it's a challenging thing. I, I think understanding the science and the theory is one thing, but then just applying it in an individual situation takes a little bit of experience and insight.
0: So well said. It really, you do need to look at the person as an individual because like mm. you said, the the training itself is really like we only have a few variables. There's just like yeah. distance, duration, intensity. There's not a yeah. lot to play with there. But for the individual, it's, it's so different. To, and the individual time of life. Mm. Like you were, quote unquote, the oldest athlete to ever win an Ironman World Championship at 38 years old. I'm sure, even in your time, how, you've been a professional triathlete now for twenty six years, twenty seven years.
1: It's been a while, yeah, quarter of a it's century. It's been a while, <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm sure, even like you, as just as yourself, as Craig Alexander, you're you've had to approach your own training in very different ways in that time as well. I expect.
1: Yeah, well, your body changes and you change, um, and then the time of life changes. Uh, you know, different times you've you have children. You have other things going on. You have opportunities outside of the sport. And it's about finding a balance, I think, like anything in life. And sometimes finding a balance means juggling three or four things at the same time. Often, if you want to be world-class at one thing, finding a balance means being able to focus on that one thing and, and being able to shelve everything else for that for that period of time. Mm. That can be the balance. So yeah, I think it's just about understanding yourself and the people around you and, and what's important for you. So And then within that, how you change over the journey, because obviously, you know, as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old coming into the sport, I'd played 15 years of soccer. So I think I had some aerobic conditioning, but a lot of the running in soccer is speed, sprinting, agility. Changing directions, which you don't really do in triathlon. Absolutely. And I think that gave me a good foundation. I think it built a lot of good core strength and stability, that that lateral movement in soccer. Mm. Obviously in triathlon, you don't need any of that, but Um, It was about building on that and building the aerobic conditioning to be a world-class athlete, which takes years. And then at at some point, you are a world-class athlete it's about just refining things and you get to a point in your career where you don't need those countless hours anymore and you can't do them. You can't do them. Your body doesn't Mm. recover the way it used to, so your body's changing. So not only are you changing, I guess, through your life emotionally and and the things you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, but physically. Physically and physiologically, your body's changing. Um, your recovery is not what it used to be. The kind of sort of focus work and training has to change. Certain things diminish with age, like speed and strength, mm. whereas in- endurance keeps accumulating. So maybe the focus and training and the balance needs to shift with those variables that you mentioned before. So I think it's about playing with all of those things. It's kind of I liken it to a, an equalizer on a sound system. Some things get dialed up, other things get dialed mm. down, and then you just change the balance all the time depending on. Because you're always re- evaluating and reevaluating as well. We have, you know, one of the great things that's changed with my time in the sport is the technology that's come into it, the software, but also the wearable technology. So we can track our training a lot more closely, mm. you know, heart rates, powers, also technical elements, and we can reevaluate and see how things are changing and um, maybe what we need to address. So, yeah, I think we're a lot smarter than with the training. I mean, there's always been great coaches and great great minds in endurance sport, but I just think, you know, the science and the technology and the innovation has infiltrated all areas of life and it's infiltrated sport now. So we can track things a lot more closely. We can prescribe training a lot better. Mm. There's a lot more great techniques around recovery, different things that have come in that have that have helped recovery, which I think obviously that helps. I mean the very premise of a successful endurance training plan is consistency of work over time, just being consistent. And being able to back up session after session, day after day, I think implies some sort of good recovery in there. Yeah, You need that recovery focus to maximize the training that you do. And I think our ideas around recovery have really changed and improved over the last 20 years. So mm-hmm. it's about playing with all of those ideas, though, um, because there's a lot of things in play.
0: Yeah, there really is. And I want to dig into the gear and the recovery Year, but first we need to take a short break and go and pay our membership fees. Do you like to shop on Amazon.com and enjoy supporting this podcast? You do? Well, have I got a deal for you? If you start your Amazon shopping adventure by going to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon, I will get a small percentage of the money that you spend. And the best part is that you don't pay anything extra. This all comes out of their pockets. Take that, Bezos. So next time you buy anything on Amazon, go to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon and shop while also supporting this podcast. I truly thank you for being a listener and for your support. That's brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon. You brought up the idea of some of the some of the fancy gadgets that are around these days. Are are there any that you gravitate towards that you you've been using yourself? You know, I
1: never. It was funny. I during my career, I did get a heart rate monitor. Early in my career, I could never afford a heart rate monitor, being a poor uni student. And yeah. And then in two thousand and two, I'd, I'd wanted to make the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, and I made the mm-hmm. I made the Australian train on squad. There was I think a squad of six male athletes, six female, and they, they were cutting it down to three and three for the final team. And before that final selection race, I got sick. Uh, I got the chicken pox, and unfor- oh, geez. yeah, which is a nasty, a nasty <laughs> virus to get as an adult. So unfortunately, I missed the final selection uh, criteria, missed the team. More importantly, I had to rehab. And that's when I got a heart rate monitor because it was a way I could monitor my resting heart rate the doctor I was working with at the time said, you know, you, you really want to monitor what your heart rate's doing first thing in the morning to see if your body's fighting this virus. And so that's when I first got a a heart rate monitor. And it was interesting that it gave an insight into what the body was doing, how, you were, how well recovered you were, um, you know, how hard the body's working, not only during training, but all the time. So that was the first, I guess, little gadget or wearable piece of technology that I got. And five or so years later, when I stepped up to race Ironman I got a power meter on my bike which I think was very helpful more so in helping me go slower when I needed to go slower rather than going faster Um, it's not just about going fast all the time it's about being in a a certain training zone for a certain amount of time each week that was a very useful tool and then from the recovery standpoint I think again the physio degree and that knowledge helped The, the two main or most important elements of recovery I think are sleeping and eating nutrition mm-hmm. you know the, the way you so basic yeah yeah so yeah. how you sleep and how how well you sleep and how much you sleep is very important and and what you eat not only for your training but in life in general what you how you fuel your body how you uh, enable to recover between sessions my mindset around recovery always started there but then yeah again being a physical a physiotherapist or so having that knowledge I, I always um, relied on massage and body work you know a big part of a big part of my weekly routine was I guess what I would call prehab rather than rehab. I would get in the gym three or four times a week and I was doing a lot of exercises around just consolidating and working on my core strength and stability, so strengthening muscles but also teaching muscles to turn on and to stay activated, postural muscles that hold the pelvis, you know just functional loading of the muscles through range, particularly into hip extension, being able to have strong, and activated posterior chain muscles, um, and then further to that, yeah. You know, so, so, so my core routine in the gym, I considered not only having, I guess, an advantages of great performance, but the advantage was was just staying injury free as well. You know, I wanted to, I wanted, I wanted my body to be strong and to be resilient enough to withstand the demands of training. And any any sort of action that you do repetitively, you want to be efficient. You want to be efficient. That's how that leads to great performance. So. Um, that was, I, I considered my gym routine part of my recovery, my recovery routine, because when I moved well, I didn't get as fatigued and I recovered better. So I, right. so that was part of my, a big part of my recovery routine. And I think for me that my, my recovery strategy always centered around sleeping well, eating well, massage, good body work, good work in the gym. Uh, so yeah, I, I learned on all of those things and, um, and different technologies as well. Uh. Because I just think, yeah, recovery is it's one thing to do the training, but it's probably the most underrated part of your whole regime.
0: It's not exciting. <laughs> yeah. but I really like what you said about um the pre-recovery, like the the idea that by going to the gym and building the stability and building the strength, you're able to use your body in a way that doesn't beat it up as much. Yeah, so then the recovery doesn't have to be as as thorough. I've actually never really heard somebody put it that way before but that is that is really smart you hear about prehab like being like making sure that you've got the extension in your hip flexors and and things like that but the idea that you're actually setting yourself up to not actually incur as much damage and therefore not need as much recovery because you're spending the time building out stability is really really smart yeah and that's something that i think everybody could could learn from too like i think a lot of people may have been thinking oh sure yeah Craig's talking about being on a bike and then needing to run afterwards but the same thing could be applied to sitting at an office desk chair in that same sort of postural inactivated position and then wanting to go and play with your kids
1: yeah oh for sure being in a car sitting in a car for long periods of time each day I think yeah I mean it just again I was very fortunate that my introduction to the sport came at the same time as I was at college learning about all of these things and the importance of Good functional movement you know a lot of it we were learning around rehabilitating stroke patients or people who had been injured mm-hmm. but there's a, but then the extension of that and was the applications in sport and you know all the examples that we would look at and examine were people who were very good, good swimmers, good runners. they had great technique. so the reason they were going so fast and so successful was because they had great technique, they were so efficient. But the, yeah, we, we also learn about the the recovery benefits of moving well as well. So there was a secondary benefit to to moving well and it wasn't only going quickly. It was you you minimized the damage to the body, therefore recovered better. So yeah, it became a big part of my routine.
0: Yeah, you know, over the last few years you've still been popping up in in races. It's been a little bit harder to keep an eye on on exactly what you're doing. You're you're sort of just randomly popping up on my social media feed, doing a race and, and winning them still at, at age 48. I, I obviously haven't been racing as much now due to COVID, but it's so inspirational to somebody like me to see like I'm 50, I'm a couple of years older than you, but and I obviously was never a professional, but I did enjoy doing triathlon and, and seeing you still just dominating it. Do you have any training advice that you could share with me that, that you've uh, that you think an age grouper like me could benefit
1: from? Yeah I, I think I think one of the mistakes I made as I, as I got older was I didn't relinquish the volume I kept the volume up and I really needed to drop the volumes mm. down and just focus a lot more on strength work specific strength work so running hills cycling hills but also in the gym mm. Get in the gym more because there's a lot of exercises in the gym where the strength gains translate really well. To the three disciplines of swimming cycling and running you can I think time spent in the gym is time well spent you can get a lot of it, it, it's a two-part benefit the, the first part which we were talking about before just the core strength and stability moving well good functional movements and reinforcing good habits but the second part is actually just lifting lifting weights with with exercises where those strength gains directly benefit swimming cycling and running so um, I, I that was one thing I did well as, as I got into my 40s was getting, and even my mid to late 30s, get in the gym more and have a really good routine. But I think I needed to drop the volume off. And and, and part of it was a, a confidence thing. I think when you've had success doing something a certain way, you're almost reluctant to change the recipe too much. See, and that's where a coach would have been handy for me, having a coach there mm-hmm. and having that someone with that confidence to say, no, this is what we need to do. So, yeah, I think one of my big problems when I – still doing the Ironman racing into my sort of early to mid-40s was I needed to relinquish because by that point, I've got 20-odd years of endurance in my body. Yeah. And you hear, you hear people all the time talk about, oh, you've got that that base, that foundation, and you think, well, what does that mean? Does that mean I can stop training and I'm still going to win races? No, it doesn't mean you can stop training, but it means certainly you've you've been investing in your training and making it, I guess, liken it to – making deposits in a bank account for a long period of time and that bank account's growing and growing and growing and and now you can make some withdrawals. You get to that point where you don't have to do the, the volume that you once did and really you need to focus more on the things that are diminishing with age, which are strength and speed. And the interesting thing about those two elements is that they take really specific sessions to work on and taxing sessions, speed sessions are taxing so are strength sessions. They take a a large toll on your body. So at an older age, we already talked about you need more recovery. So when you're doing sessions that exact a larger physical toll, you need more recovery. You need to factor that recovery in. So it sort of lends itself to really, I, th- I think getting older, there's no reason that you have to give up on your idea that you have to relinquish a lot of your goals or your level. You don't. I think in the sport that we've chosen and a lot of endurance sports lend themselves while to are getting stronger and better into your late 30s, your 40s, even your 50s, but you certainly have to have a different mindset around, okay, these are the things I need to focus on, strength and speed. I'm going to do it in a smarter way. You need to have a really big recovery focus. And you don't need as – It's it's funny, I think, when you just have that large base of endurance but also strength and speed from a lot of good years of good training practices you have the ability and the luxury of not having to train as much and you can factor more recovery into your program because that's, that's what all the years of training have bought you, that luxury and bought you the ability to be able to do that. So, but it's about being smart with it for sure. And, and I, I was always really vigilant with the sleeping, the eating, the body work, the massage, the gym work, the compression boots, Cairo, dry needling, different things just to keep the body moving well and, and feeling good. Uh, and also making sure that, you know, you need to space out these speed sessions a lot more. If you used to do one or two a week, it might mean one or two every two weeks now or yeah. um, the adaptations, you can still get them. You just don't recover as quickly. You don't bounce back. And so you're not able to hit those sort of more intense sessions as often.
0: So you said something right at the beginning when you sort of mentioned the idea of doing strength training that hills, doing hills was a type of of strength training. And I know there's a contingent of people who are listening to this podcast that are a little reluctant to go to the gym and don't really want to deal with barbells and dumbbells and stuff. So how, how do you, what were you sort of hinting at there using hills as a strength training device?
1: Well, f- firstly, I would say, don't be reluctant to anyone who's listening. Don't be reluctant to go to the gym. It's not as daunting, as it may sound, but yeah, you, you certainly need good instruction there because technique is important in the gym for not only injury injury prevention, but for, for isolating and targeting the muscles that that you want. So technique's very important. Anyway, I digress. Hills. Yeah, no, I just used to, um, I mean, you're running uphill against gravity. So you're loading the muscles more. It's like doing a weight session, but a very specific weight session out on the road. Mm-hmm. Anytime you increase the demand or the load on a muscle, you're making it work harder. And Riding and running hills force the muscle to sort of recruit more muscle fibers, and that's that's the premise of, of strength work. Right. Recruiting more muscle fibers, but also more powerful contractions. So and that's what stre- that's what hill, hill work does. So yeah, no, I had a different a few different hills around here. I had a shorter, steeper one, some 45 second hills that I would run up and walk down. I had more gradual inclines. I used to have like an incline of about four or five percent.
0: Okay, so that's not a, a, not a crazy steep no. hill, that's sort of a generally straight steep hill. Yeah,
1: and, and you run up it with good yeah. technique, hips up, try to hold the technique you'd hold on the flat, but obviously now you're running uphill, you've got that the impact of gravity slowing you down or making it harder, so you're loading the muscles and you're just creating uh, a scenario where they you're trying to recruit much more muscle fibers and, and, and with those muscle fibers, you, you're forcing them to, to create a more powerful contraction. So that that leads to strength gains. Anything you do repetitively, you can get adaptations. So that's the premise of the the training and it's the same with strength. So yeah, I had some hills that were two-minute hills, some three, some five-minute hills, but I would try and target somewhere between – if I was training for a half Ironman or an Ironman, I'd target somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes of actual uphill running in a session. But, I mean, the the best thing to do is find a loop that just has undulations. You just want some sort of – some sort of route that you have close to home because if you're going up and down the same hill I used to do that as well but you've got to factor in going up the hill and then running down it and running downhill has its challenges as well if you don't have good technique and I mean a perfect scenario would be some sort of windy uphill section and then somewhere where you can just run around and loop around to the bottom
0: And I think you you mentioned too that you can do it on your bike, you can do it running, and and I venture to guess if you're somebody who isn't necessarily into running, you could walk it. Like still walking up a hill is still going to give you that same benefit.
1: Walking up a hill will still give you the benefit because you're working against gravity. Doing it on a treadmill is an easy way to do it as well because you can, you know, running on a treadmill, a lot of people, pure running coaches, I guess, have their, I wouldn't say they don't uh, like it, but they have, they say it's not ex- exactly the same as running it. The muscles don't activate exactly the same way. And that, and that is true, but yeah. Yeah. you can use, I've always thought the treadmill is a good tool for lessening impact and also for controlling your environment a bit more. So you can change the incline on your treadmill and the speed. So someone who's at the point in their training where they're walking, you can do your hill repeats walking at a walking pace on a treadmill, or you can increase the speed and the, and the incline on a treadmill very easily. So it's a way to control the variables of your session.
0: Good stuff. All right, before I let you, I always like to get my guests to give the listeners just three things that the listeners can start doing like right away today to improve their fitness, maybe improve their longevity in the activities that they love to do. There are three things you can recommend.
1: Make it more fun. So understand what it is that you like about the training. Even if, for instance, you don't like it, but you want the weight loss or you don't really like the training, but you want to be fit and healthy. Within that framework, make it as enjoyable as possible. So structure an environment, a routine where you're meeting friends. Try to do activities that have some element of fun for you because any successful training plan is based on consistency. You've got to get out the door often. So make it as enjoyable as possible. That's number one. Sleep as much as possible and sleep well and eat well. Mm. You, you need to sleep, sleep well and eat well. And get in the gym. Get in the gym. I think that's that's something, and, and you don't even have to lift weights, but you can set up a little home gym. All you need is a mat, a Swiss ball, and a couple of little dumbbells. There are many, many exercises that you can do at home, at a home setup. And if you have it set up at home, that means you're going to be regular and consistent with it. And it only takes 20 to 30 minutes, three or four times a week where you're working on your core strength and stability. And that won't only help your exercising and your fitness goals, it'll help your quality of life. Having a good stable core helps with everything in life. So I always suggest to the athletes I work with to, to work on core strength and stability three or four times a week. That's a very good investment of your time.
0: Excellent. I think we got four or five nuggets there. That's awesome. So if people are looking for you, I'll put show notes I'll, or I'll put links in the show notes to to find you. But if you just had one spot that you wanted to let people know where they can find out more information about you, what would you where would you send um, them?
1: Social media. I'm on all those social media channels but sense ego dot co is is the training business. um the coaching. is that how you say it? Sanse yeah oh, so sans ego sans is a French word.
0: Is it, being Canadian, yeah. yeah, being Canadian, I saw it as French like ego
1: and sans ego is is how we started it, but a lot of people started saying sans ego, so i didn't I didn't want to correct them or argue. sans ego, sans ego, either way you'll find us.
0: So it is without ego is basically what 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 we're getting <laughs> yeah. at yeah
1: that was the premise of it. Yeah. If you want to improve at something, sometimes you need to drop the ego and just answer some harder questions about the things that you should be doing to get better.
0: I think we've got the title for this podcast episode. Nice. Drop the ego. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Craig. This was a great conversation. I think people got a lot of information. So thank you so much for getting up super duper early and joining us on Second Wind Fitness.
1: My pleasure, Brock. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to come on and have a chat.